Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today as we are going to speak about medical factors. I would like to say a special thank you to Dr. Diego for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thank you, Captain Teresa. So my name is Diego Garcia. I'm originally from Colombia in South America. I'm an aerospace medicine doctor, meaning that I went to medical school and then my three-year residency in aerospace medicine. And then after that, I moved to the States and got my master's degree in human factors from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, uh, where I am still affiliated as a adjunct faculty, mostly in, you know, topics as aerospace medicine, human factors, human performance, or space safety, that is one of my favorites, and some space, human space exploration. Really happy to be with you guys here, really happy to contribute to this discussion, to bring some of those aeromedical concepts for all you guys interested or actually professionals in the aerospace world. Thank you so much. And is it true that everything that we say on all of these podcasts is not meant to be taken as actual instruction or medical advice? Absolutely. For you guys that are aeromedical certified, you will also have to go to your AME for personalized consultant. And also you have to go to your primary doctor or your specialist if you have any health issues or any emergencies or any condition that needs to be assessed by a medical professional. Exactly. Because these conversations are Ultimately, they're for entertainment, although we're trying to also be educational. We can't guarantee that anything is accurate. But we are going to get started talking about medical factors because pilots have a large responsibility when they fly. We have to do a pre-flight inspection on the airplane, as everybody knows, but we also have to do a pre-flight inspection on ourselves. And that is often known in the FAA as the I'm safe checklist. Would anyone like to tell us what I'm safe stands for looking for a slow microphone flash? Let's go with Mika. Okay, so I stands for illness, M for medication, S for stress, A for alcohol, F for fatigue, and E for emotion. Excellent. That is the textbook answer. And of course, then it depends which textbook you're looking in because some FAA materials say E is for emotion and some of them will say that E is for another letter. And who would like to say what the other letter is also that E sometimes stands for? Let's go to Captain Shanita. Yeah, E and an emotion. Yes, the E can stand for both. And actually, I like them both. So let's just keep them in there. We're going to take this one element at a time. 
Let's start with illness. Let's say that you have a current medical certificate with the government and yet you fall sick. Maybe you've got a bad cold or something like that. Is it legal for you to fly? Not necessarily smart, but is it legal for you to still fly if you know that you're sick and you're tired and maybe have a headache? There is a regulation that speaks about this. It's 14 CFR 6153B. Okay, here's what it says. It says, a person shall not act as pilot in command or in any other capacity as a required pilot flight crew member while that person knows or has reason to know of any medical condition that would make the person unable to operate the aircraft in a safe manner. If you cannot operate the plane safely, if you have a headache and a cold or something where you know you can't be safe, it's just not legal even, not even to mention a good idea. Illness is the first step of the I'm safe checklist. If you are sick and then you take medication to fly and then your symptoms go away, does that mean that it's still a good idea to fly? This is an opinion question. Johnny. I don't really think, in my opinion, I do not think that it is such a great idea for you to uh, take that medication and get out there and and fly the aircraft because the the medication, you know, may have different effects. Uh, You may have taken it once before and it, uh, it worked out okay. But this time when you take it, it may not work out in your favor. So I would be careful. I personally wouldn't do it if I'm, I'm going to take some type of medication to, let's say, clear my sinuses or something like that. You know, I might want to be careful with that because the, the, the effects of the medicine may wear off quicker, you know, than, than I than expected or the, um, the advertised time on the, on the medication bottle. Perfect. I was hoping someone would get what I was speaking to on that. Let's go with Captain Shanita. I will go to the FAA website and they have a list of medication that you're not approved to take if you're going to go up flying. And if you do take them, they actually have a list of uh, how long uh, you have to be grounded before you can go back up. Exactly. So there are two good points. The first one is if you're sick enough to need medication to fly, honestly, you're probably too sick to fly because a lot of medications mask the symptoms, but they don't address the underlying cause. And you could be making things worse. And then, of course, you could have other problems, like especially if you're dealing with congestion and things like that. But now let's say that there's something more mild and you do need to take a medication. Let's talk about what Captain Shanita said. Let's go to Captain Unmesh. If you are taking any medication that is within the list of the FAA standards that, uh, you know, for example, antihistamines or a Panadol or, or something that has to do with uh, day drowsy or that Im- impairs your functionality as a pilot, those are the times, those are the medications that you should not be taking. So some are allowed, some aren't. If Even if it's an allowed or approved medication and you know that it affects you badly, you are not allowed to take it. And I assume that's fu- that's how it is in every country. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. So the question is, so if it's a prescription drug, you should definitely check out if that one's okay to fly. But even if it's an over-the-counter medication, something that you can just buy at the drugstore or pharmacy, even then you still have to check to see if it's legal. I know the answer for the United States. I don't know it for other countries. Who would like to tell us how to find out if it's legal in, in your country? Let's go to Captain Unmesh. 
for me, I've flown out of the States to Canada, Australia, UK, and India. Uh, you do not, every country, every regulator has their own list of medications in their, you know, human factors, or when they talk about FAA medical list, or they talk about Transport Canada's list of medicines. Here in India, now since you're associated with a company that is flying, you visit the company doctor. So you can go to a company doctor to check. Captain Anamash. One more way to check in India is, and also I can speak for Australia, that you can check with the aviation medicine practitioner. Those are the specific doctors, those who uh, do the annual medical. They also can um, check with them that this is my prescription and am I safe to take this medication and still continue to fly. Excellent. And that is always the correct answer in the United States as well. Check with an aviation medical examiner. When in doubt, just call them up. You can never go wrong. There is a place on the internet where you can also check about the FAA-approved medications. I have a link to that in the handout that you can get from my Instagram profile. I think most of you know it, but it's Landings with a Flair, F-L-A-I-R. That is, it's a link to aviationmedicine.com and then slash medication dash database. But I will say that even though that reflects, they try to reflect accurately what the FAA has approved, that is not an FAA primary source or primary document. So it, you, that's still not as good as speaking with an actual medical examiner. Does anyone have any final comments about taking medications before we move on? Let's go to Johnny. Yes, I wanted to you know, also ex- expand that, um, that list outside of medications. It may be a bit of a stretch, but checking with your flight surgeon or aeromedical professional about things like dietary supplements, vitamins, anything that you're taking over the counter. If, if you're you know, into working out and you want to take this protein shake or that protein shake or this fat burner or this muscle enhancer or this or that, I think those things, you know, in today's world, we can lump into that category as well. Not necessarily calling them medications, but I think those things also should be uh, just touched on or, or, or reminded about. That is a great point. I'm really glad you said that. Dr. Diego. Thank you, Captain Teresa. So, yeah, definitely. We can go up to what we know as a overarching rule, a overarching regulation, and that is going to be Annex 1 of the ICAO Council. So, you know that states and mostly, you know, most of the states around the world are signatories to that treaty. And most of our aeromedical regulations all over are based on that Annex 1 that is personal licensing. Of course, as a part of personal licensing, we have medical licensing. All the, all, you know, all the rules and every regulation and our medical aspects are based on that document. And you, Captain Teresa, just, you, know, you just read the very important part of it. Any certified personal that is not up to 100% of their capacity, they have to refrain from exercising the benefits and the privileges of their license. Having said that, illness, of course, is a word that we use for a lot of things. But in a medical field, where you, whenever you have a condition, whenever you have a diagnosis, you still can fly. 
And sometimes without a condition, without a diagnosis, you cannot fly because that health status, let's introduce something here that is very important, that wellness status, that fit for flight status is very dynamic. You know, it changes every day. It changes every moment. So you have to be, you know, aware enough of yourself, of your capacity to be 100% for whatever you're going to do. Now, on those lists, you, Captain Teresa, that is very important, and I would like to hack like that. Those lists are not official. Those are not made by the FAA. And some of those medications you cannot take. For example, if you're taking another one that might do any kind of synergy with that one that you're taking. Also, some of those need, let's say, uh, maybe you can take it for a week or less than that. But if you are taking those for more than a week or for a you know, prolonged time, then you're going to have different side effects, let's say. Definitely, and I believe that is the most important highlight here, go to your annual medical examiner. Some airlines have their own dedicated specialized medical department they can also release you and you know advise you on what to take how to take it the different medications can have different effects if you are flying or if you are not for example if you are let's say suffering from jet lag some medications also with hypoxia will act in a different way if you are, let's say, on the ground or if you are flying. For that and for avoiding all those, you know, all those variations, you definitely would like to go to your aeromedical examiner or to your medical specialist and ask them about what you can do and what you cannot do whenever you feel or you are under that broad category of illness. Thank you, Captain Theresa. Back to you. Thank you, Doctor. You brought up some really good points. The first one is, well, first of all, I'd like to say if there is a major change in your health and your medical condition, we're not just talking about a temporary illness. By all means, at that point, you should go to your doctor and you should speak with your medical examiner if there's a major change. If there's a minor change like a medication, as Dr. Diego said, you still need to get that checked out because medication gets very complex For example, there might be a time, a waiting period after you take a certain medication as it has a half-life in your system and it wears off. So you might want to find out about the waiting period. Or maybe the requirement is that you just take it when you're not flying to see how your body reacts to it. And there are some surprises. Like, for example, Claritin is allowed, but Zyrtec isn't. And a lot of people see those as virtually the same medicine or doing the same thing. Um, some are more obvious than others. If you have a sleeping medication or a medication that says don't operate heavy machinery, that's pretty self-explanatory. But I thank you for saying that. And also, I did not know that what the where the international regulations came from. So it came from Annex 1 of ICAO, International Civil Aviation Organization. So we are working on the I'm Safe checklist. We've done illness, medication, and now we're doing stress. Let's start by defining stress, and then we'll talk about the different types. I'll go ahead and give the textbook definition. It's the body's response to physical and psychological demands placed on it. 
And of course, everyone does react differently. Now, the FAA says that there are two types, acute and chronic. Who would like to explain the difference between acute and chronic? Mika, go right ahead. Yes, yeah, so acute is more for the short term, and then chronic is the long term. Perfect, perfect. Acute stress is something maybe a bear, you're walking in the woods and a bear jumps out and growls at you. That would be acute stress. You would probably go to a fight or flight scenario and you would be under a very quick short-term stress. Now, long-term stress, that can be stress from your job, from your family, from financial pressures, from so many other causes. If you have a lot of long-term stress, obviously that can lead to other problems, burnout, various uh, types of other stress, that kind of thing. The FAA does want to know the definition of a stressor or three places it can come from. Just so you know for your future tests, it could be environmental, physiological, like fatigue, a lack of proper nourishment, or psychological, like, again, stresses of relationships and things like that. Here's a question about applying this to flying. If someone is really stressed out when they fly, there's a, they'll lose one of their senses. What is the first sense that they lose? It is the sense of hearing often. I've seen people in simulators and as a flight instructor, I've seen my students just stop hearing when they were really stressed out. And one of the best things you can do is kind of tap them on the shoulder or something like that to get them to wake up. Is all stress bad or is there ways that stress can help us? Let's go to Johnny. I would say definitely not all stress is bad. Some stress that is imposed upon you helps you focus. Like when you talked about uh, the first sense that goes away is hearing, because a lot of times that individual is so focused on what they're doing, everything else gets tuned out. Sometimes it's a little bit more. That's when, uh, like Captain Teresa said, you tap them on the shoulder, that sense of touch is still there. And then they take their vision and open it back up and their hearing comes back, you know, miraculously. But sometimes the, the stress that is imposed on you is to help you focus on what you're doing. And uh, it's helpful. Thank you, Johnny. I agree fully. So. Okay, so there is a model. It's popular. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. Y-E-R-K-E-S, Dodson, D-O-D-S-O-N, law. And it actually says that some stress is good. They plot performance versus arousal. Arousal is basically another word for stress in this situation. And they actually show that as your stress level goes up, your performance goes up, up to a certain point, and then it drops off again. So I think we've all been there. There are some times when maybe we had a last minute deadline and we were just rushing around getting all these things set up and in place and you just felt like you were performing at 100% and you're just firing on all cylinders. That was a good level of stress. Your stress was really making you perform well in that moment. But then maybe we've also had that point where we got so stressed out, we just couldn't do anything at all. But how about the reverse end of that? Have you ever been just lying around at home, maybe all weekend long, watching TV shows, and someone asks you to do one tiny little thing and you just can't do it because you're just in such a relaxed state? We have done a few letters in the I'm Safe checklist. We've done illness, we've done medication, and we've done stress. 
So now we are moving on to alcohol. Alcohol, obviously, can affect someone while they're flying. And um, so what is the effect? If you have a few drinks on the ground and then you go up and fly, how does that make it worse or exacerbate it? Would anyone like to comment on that? Let's go to Enrique. Pretty much I had that experience as a passenger. And the reason for that is as the pressure decreases, as the aircraft climbs, the alcohol effects, they are going to feel a little bit stronger on your body. I can say for sure that uh, I got way more drunk when the aircraft got into the cruising altitude uh, compared to back when I wasn't at the ground. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for admitting that. It's true. Captain Unmash, go ahead. So what happens with alcohol is it goes ahead and reduces the amount of uh, oxygen your blood vessels can go ahead and have. And that reduces your overall cognitive senses. And it not only affects you, it's similar to when you're going up hiking on a, on a 4,000 foot cliff or a 6,000 foot uh, in a hill. Your body is going to feel the same way. Your body is going to be dehydrated at the cabin environment. And over that, your alcohol is making it further dehydrated. It's similar to having even you know, strong black coffee. Even that's going to go ahead and do the same effects, but not as much as how alcohol would. Yes, and Mika. Yeah, I have a great example too. So as a pilot, for sure, we wouldn't drink alcohol on the board. But um, when I was working as a flight attendant, I saw a lot of passengers who get drunk very easily, saying that, they ask for more drink, and then I try to slow down, uh, slow them down, explaining why you know you have to drink less in, on the air. But then they will say, "No, I'm a, you know I can handle it. Please give me more alcohol." And eventually they get drunk. That is a, a common problem. So many passengers just do not realize how the effects of alcohol are multiplied as they go up to higher altitudes with lower oxygen, as Captain Unmesh was saying. Any other comments on how alcohol can affect you in flight or stories? Uh, let's go to Johnny. Yes, the, the thing I want to harp on is know your limits. Like everyone's um, ability to consume alcohol, your body's effects of the alcohol, is it varies. So know your limits. If you're on a trip or something like that, and you and the captain or the whole crew will start drinking, your ability to hang with the captain or vice versa may be very different. Absolutely, 100%. Okay, so let's talk about the exact regulations. This is going to vary from country to country. Enrique, go ahead. No, just before we move on, I saw Dishel's mic flashing. Oh, thank you for joining us, Dishel. I did invite you up. I know you have a lot of knowledge in this area. Did you have a comment? I did have a comment. It was kind of along of what, with what Johnny just said about knowing your limits. In my time as a flight attendant, we had a passenger that we were literally in the middle of our service. And um, literally, we pulled the carts up. You know, we had the big carts, but this is back when we had food. So we were doing so, you know, it's been a while since, uh, since I was flying. But um, we had the big carts pulled all the way up to the front. We had started working, serving the passengers, moving our way through the cabin. And so we hear dings. So we look, we don't see anything. So we go right back to serving. 
So then all of a sudden we hear like tons of dings, like ding, 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 ding. And so we all look. And so someone, a few of them say, you know, show us the point looking down. So we look down and the man is on the floor in the galley. And so we rush, I mean, literally we're jumping over the carts. We're on the, um, jumping up on the armrest to get over the carts because we can't get the carts out of the way because, you know, we're on a, a, a single out air, aircraft, I think an Airbus at the time. And so we get back there and come to find out we thought he was having a real life medical emergency, which he was, but it was because he was dehydrated from he had we had just left Vegas and he had been drinking all day, you know, hanging out, drinking, his wife said, you know, having a good time partying. And he was so dehydrated that he completely fell out. And this can happen to us as crew members. You know, we're on that good, that great layover. You know, we're having a ball with our crew and we don't realize the effects of, you know, how our body reacts even after the fact. You know, you may think that, you know, that six to eight hours of rest is enough time to overcome that that alcohol or whatever you've been doing on your layover. But sometimes that's just not enough time for you to recuperate in order to, you know, serve your clients, um, the passengers best. Oh, that is a great story. And it's worth noting that the air in the air in the airplanes and the jets is so dry that that will add to your dehydration as well. Absolutely. We almost had to divert to, you know, to get him off the plane because we didn't know what was going on. So of course we had to call in, call for medical attention and those things on the flight, you know, um, over the PA. And of course, let the pilots and everyone know what was going on. But after, you know, that he was assessed, we were able to continue on. But it it got really serious really quickly. Sure. Yeah. Because he wasn't wearing a sign saying, I'm just dehydrated. It could have been a heart attack. (laughs) And, you know, and that's what it happened. It represented as something completely different than just simple dehydration. Wow. You had some excitement in that job. I respect you. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you. Thank you so much. The regulations on alcohol are going to vary from country to country slightly, but let's talk about them. Who would like to speak by talking about the actual written regulation for your country? Captain Unmesh. Mostly, even in India, actually, and all the countries that I've flown out of, the simple rule that they've gone ahead and said is when you're going for a flight uh, in commercial and you do your breathalyzer test, it should be zero. There should be all zeros. There should not be a digit even after a decimal point of the zeros. Now, how you get to that is a prerogative of the individual. Now, aviation uh, you know, professionals and enthusiasts would always remember uh, the 12-hours the uh, bottle-to-throttle or an 8-hour restrictive bottle-to-throttle. But if you indulge into binge drinking, and that is happening even if it is 24 hours before your flight, you might still exuberate some effects of alcohol in your body, and that is not correct. So uh, a simple rule of thumb for any country, when you're going for a pre-flight breathalyzer assessment, it is it should be zero. And uh, until pre-COVID in India, we used to go ahead and have a pre-flight breathalyzer assessment for every flight. And that was a mandatory uh, norm. And now, due to COVID, it has been restricted. It has been reduced. So we're just doing for 10% of the airline, or rather 5% now of the airline of each 
base departures. So if an airline is flying 10 flights in a day, so just 5% of that means even half of a single flight's crew can do your breathalyzer test and you're okay to go. Wow, that's a lot stricter than it is in the United States. We don't do that kind of testing that frequently in the airlines, although you can still be surprised by an alcohol test. And also our blood alcohol content rules are different too. Let's go to Destiny J. Destiny J, would you like to speak about the alcohol regulations with the FAA in the United States? Yeah, I was just going to say it's a little different. I believe it's a 0.4% in the United States and then like eight hours. Yes, in the United States, that is accurate. 0.04 blood alcohol content, which is considered to be high in a lot of places. That's higher than a lot of other countries. And then... It's eight hours bottle to throttle is what we say minimum, but then it also says a little bit more. Does anyone else want to add to a little bit more on that regulation? Captain Shanita. I was basically saying you in, in short term, you can't be hungover. You can't have the uh, case have lingering effects of uh, alcohols, like no hangover, no dizziness, no fatigue, stuff, you know, stuff like that. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to get is. You may not have anything that still affects you. Alcohol can remain in someone's system for up to 16 hours at least. And so remember that even if you're hung over, you can still be affected by alcohol or a drug as well. That is also something to keep in mind. Captain Unmesh. I wanted to also throw in this fact that uh, for the regulations in India, if you're flying Say you're flying out of you know, New York and flying straight into New Delhi. The first port of arrival into India, you need to go and do your breathalyzer assessment. That, that is mandatory. Does the FAA have any such rules if you're flying out from somewhere and you arrive and you can still be uh, pulled out for a breathalyzer assessment? Not to that level. We, we can be randomly, as a pilot, I... I can land from a flight and have someone from my company waiting there and telling me that I have to immediately go and take a drug and alcohol test, just maybe as part of a random check. But it's actually not nearly as common, and it's not systematic where you always expect it. It's, it's actually quite rare. Well, the same, the same rule goes in the Middle East as well. So Middle East, for the big three airlines that fly out of you know the Emirates, Etihad, and Qatar, even they do not have a mandatory breathalyzer assessment, but they do a random breathalyzer assessment or a drug test before a flight. And that's also for the Middle East. Wow. Wow. So let's, yeah, Johnny, go right ahead. Man, this is such a, uh, a near uh, topic that's near and dear to me because, you know, being as, as a military pilot, our rules are just a little bit different. It is 12 hours bottle to throttle. And that bottle to throttle, that, that blurb right after that, you know, that's a you know colloquial term, but it's 12 hours with residual effects. The residual residual effects is a very subjective thing. It's not, you know, hey, I'm I'm good. You know, that's subjective to the crew that you're flying with. If I feel like I can notice residual effects to that alcohol, then that flight is not going. You may feel like you're good, it may have been 14 hours, but the residual effects are very subjective to how I feel as your crew member. And I think I'm, I'll pose a question back to, to you all. 
when you say the residual effects, is it also, do you feel like it's a subjective thing? And are you willing to toe the line to say, hey, we're not going to do this, or I need to replace this other pilot? Who wants to comment? Mika, go ahead. Yeah, since I have experience in two other countries, I wanted to share. In Korea, our limit was 0.03%, and we got tested randomly sometimes. So they they sometimes come to the briefing room to check before the flight. And also, while I was in United Arab Emirates, I believe we had a zero tolerance. And um, I never gotten checked for my five years experience, but I heard even for your like mouthwash can affect on the test. So you need to be careful with that too. That is true. And remember that alcohol can be hidden in various medications and even in mouth sprays, breath sprays, things like that, mouthwash. So very true. And so even though the FAA says eight hours bottle to throttle, Johnny brought up a great point that your individual employer might have another regulation. Most airlines are going to say at least 12 hours. Even the Aeronautical Information Manual recommends 12 to 24 hours. So you could say, well, it's been eight hours. I followed the regulation, but you didn't follow the recommendation. And so the FAA and other countries can, again, it is subjective, and then they can, that can sort of affect how they judge what happened in a situation. The other thing I'll say is that if there is an airplane accident, it is very common for a government authority to ask for a blood or alcohol test after that. Any, and I know we all saw, a lot of us saw the movie Flight with Denzel Washington. Uh, any other comments on that? Dr. Diego? I can go in there because you, you, you push my buttons right there. So various things. I will have to say, Captain Teresa, that alcohol and drugs programs are actually systematic. So most of our regulations here in the United States, but most of our, of, of our countries request and, and actually is a mandate to have a program, uh, the drug and alcohol program. And all those programs will have an amount of monthly tests, random tests, that you actually have to go and, and perform. So there's a number, of course, on big companies, you know, and, and, and because are not that much, you will probably not be, you know, taken by surprise or call for action on, on one of those. But they have to, let's say, cope and comply with a certain number and it's systemic. You say document is a full program on alcohol and drugs we have had a lot of issues enforcing that those programs with covid of course because most of those screening tests are blowing through a specialized instrument and well with with covid and all the pandemic thing there's a lot of, of caveats to that procedure but still those are you know those are part of our safety and human performance programs and tools and strategies, and those are up in most of our countries. Now, for what you said, enforcing, and what happens if you are on, on one of those, you know, random screening tests, or even if you are, because for most of our accident investigation authorities, if you are involved in a safety event, you will have to 
you know, go through one of those. But then if you have a positive for some of you guys that we're talking about, just a slightly positive, you know, we don't have, for some countries, we don't have those thresholds. I'm familiar with, for example, in Chile, in, in Chilean regulations, they are tolerant zero, absolutely, absolutely no alcohol. But what happens when you are, you know, tested and, and test positive, uh, even in a, in a small amount? That will trigger another very complicated process. And he's seeing if that is a true positive, if you are really under the influence. And for that, you have to have two different, say, processes. One is a clinical, you know, sometimes you, you, you've seen those police officers that will make you go and, and walk in straight line and then touch your nose and things like that. There is a clinical assessment. But also you have to have confirmation and that confirmation for most of our regulation has to be on blood. And the reason behind that is because if you, as, as we, you were talking about, if you uh, consume any alcohol or drugs, let's say in the last six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, you can still have those metabolites on your system, but that doesn't mean that you are necessarily under the influence of that substance. So for confirmation, especially for legal actions, but also for some administrative or you know, in, within company actions, you will have to have those confirmations. Now I'm gonna throw real quick a really nice story here. Most of you guys will hear, have hear about that American Airlines accident down in Colombia, in Buga, in Buga, Colombia, you know. That was back in 2000, 1995. That was American Airlines flight 965 in Colombia. We have a 159 fatalities. We just have four supervivians, actually five, but one uh, dead uh, died on the on the on the on, on the site. But for that one, when the bodies of the flight crew, captain and, and co-pilot, went through the through the coroner uh, services down there in Colombia, the director, the very director of that coroner services, went out and said that alcohol were you know were detected on the blood of the captain captain tourmary i believe was the name so of course that is a big scandal now you know a practically new aircraft boeing 757 crashing down on mountain and now the pilot is under the influence of alcohol. Of course, that was a major breach on, on procedures, medical and, and forensic procedures, because that alcohol reading was coming from his blood. And of course, after being out there in that mountain for, I believe it was 40, 48 hours at least, you are gonna have that fermentation process on the, on the sugars on your blood. And it's perfectly normal to have a uh, post-mortem you know, uh, matrix with alcohol formation on blood. Of course, you have different ways to double test that. One is going to be your vitreous humor, meaning the liquid that is inside your eyeball, also the fluid around your, your brain. And that is how you can test if that 
alcohol blood content was post-mortem or pre-mortem. So a really nice, really interesting discussion about drugs and alcohol. Now we're talking about other kind of abuse, you know, it's not always about substance, but we are now talking about screens, uh, Netflix, gambling, gaming, a whole lot of abuse, be abusive behavior. And also as alcohol and drugs, we will have to take that into account and we will have to take actions because it will impair your performance just as alcohol or drugs can. Wonderful points. I had no idea that the accident investigations would get so complex like that. I mean, I'm not surprised, but also I do like how you talked about the word systemic or systematic. When I I use that word, I probably used the wrong word. I just meant uh, maybe predictable or something like that. But yes, there are very strict systems for drug and alcohol tests for how the random tests are conducted. And there are also programs to help pilots. One of the very popular ones is called HIMSS, the Human Intervention Motivational Study. Sometime we will probably do a whole lesson on substance abuse and mental health for pilots. And that is a great conversation. We could easily spend a whole lesson just on that. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback, or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, landingswithaflare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the Club Pilot Flight Training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.